I'm excited to be with you today as we launch into our fall season. Excited because this year we're going to focus our church family around a single word. One very powerful word, the word hope. Hope, not just wishful thinking like I hope the Giants win today, but biblical hope, which is a confident assurance, something that comes with an absolute guarantee. Hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope in a good future because Jesus is the anchor for your soul, which is the theme of the women's luncheon later on today. Hope in something eternally solid, always dependable, always faithful, always merciful. Hope. Our sense of hope affects everything we do. What we believe about the future shapes the choices we make in the present. If you have hope, if you believe in something, then that's where you're willing to invest yourself. If you have hope, you invest your time, your energy, your money, your best self into that which gives you hope. But if you don't have hope, your life shrinks. You hold back, you withdraw, you become risk adverse. You play it safe or, or you just stop trying. Without hope, people give up and there are so many sad stories of people who have lost hope. They give up on their marriages, their family, their job, their future. They give up on themselves, really. And people do give up on God when they lose hope. And on a larger scale, when people lose hope in their leaders, whole cities, whole nations can descend into chaos, violence, injustice, and even war. That's why we all need hope. The gospel is a story of hope centered in Jesus Christ. And this fall, we're going to explore how God brings the hope of Christ to our lives through the stories in a not-so-well-known portion of the Bible, the Minor Prophets, the portion at the end of the Old Testament from Hosea to Malachi, called the Minor Prophets, not because they don't matter as much as the other ones, but simply because they're shorter than the big dog prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Though often overlooked, the minor prophets have something powerful to say to us about how God brings hope to people when they need it most. And so this morning we're going to start off with the story of Hosea. And it's a great story because it's a love story. Not a fluffy butterflies and rainbows kind of love story that you'd see on the Hallmark Channel. It's a gritty love story, a disturbing love story because Hosea has nobody's idea of an ideal marriage. Hosea began his ministry around 800 B.C. and continued for about 50 years. His book only covers a small portion of his life and teaching. So let me kind of set the table a bit. The ancient people of Israel became kind of a powerhouse nation under King David around 1000 B.C. David's son Solomon built on what David had accomplished and led Israel to become the envy of the ancient world in terms of its wealth and its military power. And though Solomon was a wise man, Often he did not follow his own advice, especially when it came to being a parent. And so he had two good-for-nothing sons, and when Solomon died, they went at each other tooth and nail over who should rule Israel. Their conflict escalated into a brutal civil war, and within that civil war, there was also rebellion, rebellion against God and against following the covenant God had made with the people of Israel. As a result of them turning against God, Israel never again regained its former glory. The war split Israel into two nations, sort of a two-state stalemate that went on for several hundred years. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel. The southern kingdom took the name of its dominant tribe and was called Judah. And the whole rest of the Old Testament story is about the success of kings of these two nations and how good or bad they were, mostly bad. 
though overall the kings of Judah did a little bit better than the totally corrupt kings of Israel. But in both nations, the kings were the ones who led the people further and further away from their God. They even began or tolerated the worship of the pagan gods from the nations around them, especially Baal and Moloch, the detestable gods of the Canaanites, whose worship even included child sacrifice. That's how bad it got in Israel and Judah. And God was not going to let that situation continue indefinitely. Trouble was coming to both Israel and Judah, and the prophets had the job of warning and then pleading with the people to come to their senses and return to their true God. Hosea was just a young preacher in the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. He was a contemporary of prophets like Isaiah and Amos. He lived, as we are told in the first verse of chapter 1, during the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Johash, the king of Israel. Jeroboam was one of the worst kings, one of the really wicked kings. Nothing good happened under him. Nothing good was happening when Hosea was preaching. Things were out of control. People didn't have much use for God at all. They had bigger fish to fry. So people didn't really pay attention to Hosea. When he spoke of judgment and chastisement, when he said God was going to raise up the nation of Assyria to punish the people, a ruthless army would sweep across the land like locusts, the people, they really just didn't pay any attention to him, thought he was just a wacko, thought Hosea's version of God was just a judgmental old meanie, you know. And so Hosea was given kind of a dismissive pat on the head, you know, the you're interesting but harmless kind of treatment. Hosea tried to tell them that God wasn't just about judgment and vengeance, that he wanted them to know that God was a God of love. And, ju and that this judgment that he was bringing was actually an act of love. God wanted them to see the damage that they were doing to themselves, how far off track they had strayed as individuals and, and as a culture. And the only way he could get their attention, the only way to get them to listen, was to turn things upside down. But they didn't want to hear it. Instead, they used the same old tired excuse. If God is really a God of love, then why would he let bad things happen? How could a God of love ever send these ruthless Assyrians down on our heads? And so, so young Hosea found out that the people were kind of polite to his face, but behind his back, they sneered at him. And so Hosea was discouraged. But in chapter 1, God tells him to do a very strange thing. God says, I want you to get married. And I think Hosea brightened up at that idea. I mean, he was a young man. He was a bachelor. He was probably ready to get all wifed up, you know, if he could only meet the right girl. And then God said, and I've got the girl picked out for you. I mean, wow. I mean, that, that meets match.com. God had her already picked out. I mean, wouldn't that be great if it was that simple? I know some single people who wish it was that easy. You know, a lot of people have prayed, God, just, just send me the right person, right? Well, you've got to be careful what you pray for. The young woman God had chosen for him was named Gomer, and Hosea was definitely interested in her. But then God said to him, I want you to know the whole story about this girl. I want you to marry her, but she is going to be unfaithful to you. In fact, she will become nothing but a common street prostitute, and I want you to marry her anyway. Now, Hosea had to be confused by God's strange command. I mean, just like Abraham was puzzled by God's command about his son Isaac, God does some strange things sometimes, things we don't understand, things we can't put into a category, things that don't fit into what we think we know about him. 
And this is one of those kind of strange things. He tells Hosea, I want you to marry this girl, and she is not going to just commit adultery. She is going to sell herself to other men. Can you think of anything that would crush a marriage more than that? Anything that would justify divorce more than that? How humiliating to be Hosea, to be saddled with a wife like her. You see, it's not that God caused Gomer to be unfaithful. He didn't force that upon her. But God, in his foreknowledge, knew that there was something in her heart, something restless, something dark, where she would not be satisfied with her life with her husband and her children. God didn't cause it, but God did allow it to happen. And then he used it to tell a bigger story of hope and mercy. God goes on to say, Hosea, you're going to have three children, two boys and a girl. And when they're born, I want to name them for you. You know, God often used the symbolism of names to teach certain truths because back then the meaning of your name was really important to people. Like when Jesus gave the name Peter, the rock, to his disciple Cephas, who hadn't been all that steady up till then. God was planning to use Hosea and his family as an object lesson for the people of Israel. So Hosea goes out courting, and sure enough, he and Gomer were married. At first, it was heaven on earth. Hosea really loved this girl. And you can't read this book without seeing that. I mean, he fell for her head over heels in love. Their, their first years together must have been wonderfully happy. But it wasn't too long before Gomer started to veer off course. They had their first child, a boy, and as God said, he would. Hosea's heart was, you know, filled to bursting. And then he went to God for the name of the boy. You know, what should we name him? And to a surprise, God picked the name Jezreel. Now, Jezreel means castaway, and it was a name of shame in Israel. I don't know if you remember the bloody story of Queen Jezebel. It's in 1 Kings 19 through 2 Kings 9. She's the one who tried to kill the prophet Elijah, did kill many of God's prophets. Eventually, God's judgment fell on her. She was looking out the upper window of her castle one day and a general named Jehu was down in the courtyard below and he just kind of ordered his men to throw Je uh, Jezebel out the window. And they did and she died in the fall. They left her body there in the courtyard to be eaten by stray dogs. And so that courtyard was called Jezreel ever since. And that was the name God picked for his oldest son. I mean, God was using Hosea's son as a warning to the people that they too would be cast away if they didn't recognize the folly of their sin and turn to him from those pagan idols. God warned them with this baby's name. And then they had a daughter. And that one was named Loruhama, which means not loved or not pitied. Imagine naming your little baby girl not loved. It meant that God would no longer have pity on his people if they continued their stubborn rebellion. His patience was wearing thin. After hundreds of years of trying to reach them, time was running out. He was warning them that they were getting near the end. A time would come when he would no longer pity them, but would hand them over to invading armies. And in a short while, Gomer conceived again a third child. It's another little boy, and this one God named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. God was saying, you are not my people, and I will not be your God. God was warning them again, I will disown you if you keep going down this rebellious path. After this, Gomer began to fulfill the sad prediction that God had made when he had first told Hosea to marry her. What a heartbreak it must have been 
for Hosea to hear those whispers that began to circulate about his wife, about what happened when he was away on one of his preaching trips. Maybe even his own children innocently said something about the men who visited when daddy was away. And soon it became obvious that Gomer was running around with other men. Think of the arguments, the tension, the desperation in that home. This isn't in the text, but I can imagine that one day Hosea came home and found a note from Gomer. That she decided to pursue the happiness that she felt she deserved. That she was leaving him and the children to be with some guy that she thought who was you know, her soulmate. And so off she goes and she leaves Hosea and her children behind. So about this time, a new tone came into Hosea's preaching. He still warned of God's judgment to come and the fact that God was going to send the Assyrians down on Israel. But no longer did he announce it with thunder. He spoke to them with tears. And he began to speak of a day of hope, a day when love would at last triumph, when after the bitter lesson was learned, that the way of rebelling against or ignoring God is really hard, Israel would yet turn back to God, to the God who loved her. And there would come a day of restoration. Hosea 2.23, a beautiful verse of hope, where God says to Hosea, using the names of the children but changing them, God says, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not the loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So even in this time when God was announcing judgment, the hope of his grace was also being shown. Instead of not love, she would be called loved. Instead of not my people, she would be named my people again. But for Gomer, things weren't working out the way she thought they would. Her soulmate turned out to be a fraud, and now she's getting passed from man to man. Her life was out of control. She was in a death spiral. If this was a modern story, she'd be a heroin-addicted prostitute working the dark streets of Newark. Finally, she fell into the hands of a man who was going to sell her to the highest bidder. I mean, the human trafficking of sex workers, that's not a new thing. News of her downward spiral came to Jose, and I'm sure when he heard that Gomer was going to be sold at auction, I mean, this broken-hearted prophet went weeping to God, and God said, Hosea, do you love this woman in spite of all that she has done to you? And through his tears, Hosea nodded, yes. And then God said, then go get her. Go show your love for her in the same way that I still love the nation of Israel. And Hosea went out to find her. He went to the marketplace. He watched Gomer brought up onto the platform, stripped of all her clothing, naked before the crowd, and then the bidding began. Someone bid three pieces of silver. Hosea raised it to five. Somebody else upped it to eight, and Hosea bid ten. Somebody went to eleven, and he went to twelve. And finally, Hosea offers fifteen pieces of silver and a bushel of barley. The crowd was silent, and the auctioneer's gavel fell. And Hosea had his wife back. Hosea went to her, put clothes on her, led her away by the hand, took her to his home. Probably more than one person in the crowd thought he was a fool for doing so. But who can explain the madness of love? Love exists apart from reason. It has its own power, its own impulse. It doesn't often doesn't make any sense. Love doesn't act according to logic. Love acts according to its own nature. And so Hosea acted on the basis of love. 
And then follows is one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. As Hosea led her away, he said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the harlot or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Hosea 3.3. Did you hear that? Hosea pledged his love to her anew. After all she had done to disgrace him, he pledges his love to her. And that was all this poor woman could take. She had fallen into the very dregs of shame, but the love of this man finally broke through her hardened heart, gently healed her damaged heart. And from this time on, Gomer was a loving and faithful wife, a gentle and caring mother. All this to illustrate, God does not give up. God does not give up on wayward Israel. He doesn't give up on you or anyone else, no matter how much we might stiff-arm God, how much we might struggle, how weak our faith, how often we fail, how easily we are led astray. God is a God of mercy and hope. The rest of the book of Hosea simply goes to tell the effect of this story on the nation of Israel. God said to them, how could I give up on you? He reminds them of his love, all the years of his goodness, how again and again they turn their backs on him, but God never gives up on them. The final picture of the book is one of beauty and glory, for it looks to the day when Israel will at last return to God as her true husband. Let me read from Hosea chapter 6, the first three verses. They say, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains and like the spring rains that water the earth. Israel's future hope was that the Messiah would come to water them like cooling rain, revive their parched souls and raise them up again. Can you see in this story the beautiful elements of the eternal triangle? There's the loving God, the faithless human heart, the deceptive attractiveness of this world. This story is our story. It's your story. It's my story. So many times we try to satisfy ourselves with the lying idols of of self-importance or wealth or the false promises of materialism. Ours is a blindness that's like Gomer's. We can't distinguish between lust and love. We run from God thinking that happiness or fulfillment can be found in the way of the world. Uh, That happiness can be found in the bottom of a bottle or through working harder or through more money or through gaming or other kinds of activities. But like Gomer, we have to come to the point of realizing just how empty all those things are of themselves when we pursue all those things apart from Christ. God touches our sleeve with his love, saying, My child, my nature is to love. It's not logical. And I love and I must act according to who I am. And when you tire of all your running around and your wandering and your heartbreak, I will be there to draw you to myself. That is the story of the gospel, isn't it? Through Jesus Christ, God entered the slave market of this world where he, the whole human race was, was putting itself up for auction, prostituting itself and its humanity to a cheapened life. But on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ paid the price, the full price for our freedom, clothed us in his grace, bought us back, redeemed us with his blood. 
This is the story of God's love and God's heart, God's hope, his loving desire to make you all the full person he wants you to be, that he made you to be. He promises never to give up on you. John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life and those who believe in me shall never perish and no one will be able to snatch them out of our hands. That's the hope that we have in Christ. Now I'm guessing your situation is not as dire as Gomer's. She's the extreme, but her situation reminds us of a lot of things. Reminds us also that sex trafficking is a real thing. I'm glad we're doing something in our small corner of the world to do that. Our Women Walking for Women for the uh, next Saturday is a place where we help women in Malawi, Africa through our Women's Educational Center there, offering biblical training and learning and a job skill to women caught in the sex trade. And so you can be a very much a part of helping with that. For the rest of us, we'll be able to respond in a tangible way on September 23rd when we have representatives from the International Justice Mission here. The same hope that was offered to Gomer through the love of her husband, Hosea. The same hope offered to Israel through the love of their God. The same hope offered to us through our Savior Jesus. The same gospel of hope that we can offer to people around us and around the world. Hope in something eternally solid, always dependable, always faithful, always merciful. Hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this incredible love story of Hosea and Gomer and how we see our own wandering and our own coming back and your gracious pursuit of us in this story. Lord, help us just to remember that you are always seeking us and always desiring us and that you have decided never to give up on us, that grace is unreasonable, it's unthinkable, but it's true. We thank you for the power of your love. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.